It's the Shegilola Salami Show. I'm your host, Shegilola Salami. Um, the Shegilola Salami Show is a podcast show set in a virtual cafe. Normally, the show is about books and publishing where you get to learn something new, um, you know, be inspired, be motivated. And, you know, we would have book recommendations. So it's mostly about book recommendations, either from the author's point of view or from, you know, if the guest is an author or, you know, from somebody else who is not an author and, you know, we just sort of learn something around, you know, books. Um, but as Christmas is fast approaching and, you know, 2019 is fast coming to an end, I thought it would be time to do something more chilled out and not as heavy as the usual um, episodes. So I thought it would be quite interesting to have some, you know, have you listened to some audio dramas so today I've got with me an audio drama producer, but I would let him introduce himself. So who have I got here with me? Hey, uh, this is Matthew William. Uh, thanks for having me here. This is a really nice place you got here. I, uh, I've never seen this place before. <laughs> I know, it's, 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 it's a nice little place hidden in the web. Um, so tell us about yourself, Matthew. Yeah, so yeah, my name is Matthew and I am a author, an author, an independent author. And um, what I do is I release uh, my audiobooks as a sort of uh, cinematic podcast audio drama. Some people call them patio books. Uh, and so what I do is oh, really? I, you know, record my uh, audiobooks and then I, you know, add a little bit of cinematic uh, music to them and have all the different characters, but it's just me. Uh, alone in a room uh, doing the recording and yeah and then I release them that way I release them week by week and I just uh, wrapped up the production of my first season of uh, The Star Collector as the name of my latest patio book and uh, yeah it's going really well it's a fun way to get uh, the books out there because so many people a lot more people listen to podcasts than listen to audiobooks nowadays so it's a good way to sort of get them get them hooked and to uh, yeah listening to my stuff. Yeah, well, that's quite interesting. Well, you know, it is a virtual cafe. Um, my favorite drink is a hot chocolate. I can have a hot chocolate, you know, 10 times a day. So where, if you went to a cafe, what would you have? Oh, man, it's hard to decide. It depends if I need coffee or not, how much coffee I've had that day. Uh, otherwise, a nice chai is always hard to beat. Something nice and sweet and creamy. Is there chai good here? I'm not sure. I haven't tried it yet. Well... So it seems right, and I seem to be getting a trend. Every most people, I would say, seven out of ten guests who've come to my virtual cafe likes chai latte. I've been saying okay. I really need to try this, right? Because you know, until because I don't normally like hot chocolate is my thing, and you know, nothing else can beat a hot chocolate, right? You know, extra milky, extra chocolatey hot chocolate is the best, as far as I'm concerned. But then, since I've been running the virtual cafe. Most people go for chai latte and I feel like I need to try it to see what everyone else, you know, why, you know, seven out of 10 people. I mean, this is just me guessing, you know, seven out of 10 people, but that's just how much, you know, people like chai latte in the virtual cafe. So yes, you can, you can have, you can have your virtual ca uh, chai latte. What that's a very like high that? ratio, seven, seven out of 10 is a very high ratio. <laughs> I'm very surprised. Yeah, because it's just 
because it's so every time I, I can almost guess that's what the guests would ask. And then you've not, because when you, I asked you, I was like, please don't tell me you're going to say chai latte. And voila, you said chai latte. Sure enough. Now, now where you're from, do they do uh, with the hot chocolate? Will they, will they put marshmallows in it ever? I guess if you ask, um, but most time, you know, it's, again, it's just depending if you want. I would normally go for whipped cream. Um, right. But again, I'm not. I'm not a big fan of marshmallows, so I don't normally have mine, but mine, the perfect accompaniment is, is a croissant, literally. That is just heaven. Hard to beat that. <laughs> yeah, because I, I grew up in, in Pennsylvania, and, you know, they have the little instant uh, hot chocolates that you buy in the store, and sometimes they come with these little gross little uh, freeze-dried marshmallows that aren't very good. <laughs> but you can sort of put those in, and that's a... Uh, <laughs> Yeah, no, I don't. I don't like that. But then again, it's probably because I don't have. Even though I like hot chocolate, I don't have a sweet tooth, so that's kind of like just limited. You know, it's like hot chocolate and pastry, and no right. chocolate in my pastry. Like I wouldn't have, you know, any pastries with chocolate, even though I like hot chocolate. I'm like a weirdo. But anywho's, anywho's, you know, we will get you your virtual drink. And what pastry do you normally have? Ooh, uh, you know what? You, you mentioned a croissant, so that sounds pretty good. I think I'll go with one of them. Okay, awesome. Well, it is a nice cold day in London, and the sun is out, so it's a really beautiful day. So, you know, I think it's a good opportunity to learn more about your podio books. You know, that's the first time I've heard that term. So was, how do you get it? So what you write your book is normal and release it. Then you start producing it as an audiobook. Is that how it works? Yes. yes. Uh huh. And then I re will release it chapter by chapter uh, each week. So this latest book was about, I think it was 24 chapters or 23 chapters. Um, yeah. And so it was over the course of a little longer than 23 weeks with different breaks in between. But yeah, it was 23 episodes and all. It sounds quite intense. And, you know, it sounds like it involves a lot of work. So how do you get around doing it and what motivates you to keep on doing it? Yeah, it's a marathon. I'll tell you that much. Um, it, you just have to take it one step at a time. You just have to say, this week, I'm going to do a chapter, get it done, record it, everything, get the music set up, polish it up, send it out, and then just have to keep on doing that week after week. Okay. So how many books have you written so far? Um, now I am, this was my fourth, my fourth one. Okay. Um, so talk us through. So how did you learn? So what, okay, no, let me start again. What made you decide to make, convert your book to an audio drama by yourself? And what are the things you've learned since you did the first episode to where you're at today? I think what made me decide it is that I had a difficulty finding readers. Um, and I think it was a lot easier to get people to listen to me reading it as a recording. And so it just sort of grew from there. Um, and so the first one I did was in 2015. That was another uh, podcast I did. It was called mm -hmm. The Enoch Bill. And so between then and now, I think it's just a matter of uh, perfecting the process 
and being a little more smart in how I do things and being a little quicker and yeah, realizing the pros and cons of uh, releasing a book like this, because the book winds up way more polished after reading it out loud. loud, loud, uh, Come to realize. Okay. So do you, when you record it, do you go back and edit the book? Yeah, because yeah, I will always uh, notice little mistakes or, Maybe when I'm saying something out loud, um, maybe a line of dialogue winds up a little bit better. Maybe just that little different phrasing that's more natural. Um, so yeah. it, it, it does change quite a bit from start to finish. Okay. Okay. So can you give us, you know, so let's say someone's listening to us right now and the person's an author and they're like, oh, you know what? That sounds interesting. I would like to do this. Or the person just thinks, you know what, I think I can make an audio book myself or I can, you know, make an audio drama. Or I think what was the most common one I heard recently, they want to do a role playing game. What are the things that you've learned that you didn't know at the time you started that you know now that you think someone who's listening could benefit from? Yeah, I think you need to have uh, the proper attitude, realizing that it's going to take a while. It's going to be a big project. Uh, need to have the proper equipment, maybe have invest in a decent mic, and then also the proper uh, a recording software. I use Audacity, and that's pretty easy to figure out and simple to use and has a lot of really good tools. So I recommend uh, that. And at the very least, uh, if someone's an author or a writer, I really recommend reading your work out loud. Uh, that's the biggest takeaway that I've come from uh, with all of this. Read it out loud and uh, your work will really improve as a result of that. Yeah, well, I can actually, um, you know, attest to that and agree with you because when I first wrote my first children's book, I had a book reading in a library. And then when I was reading, you know, the book, I then noticed some things and I was like, oh, shoot, how is this in the final copy, right? So I do agree, reading it out loud to an audience does make things, it makes you see things that you probably wouldn't have noticed if you were just putting it down on pen and paper. Uh, but the other thing that I was going to comment and do, audacity, I, even though I do this and, you know, from all, all intents and purposes, I have a bit of IT knowledge, I'm quite clueless because I did get audacity and I could not figure it out. I kept looking, I'm like, you know what? I've not got time for this, right? So get me something simpler. So please, what else is idiot proof right here? I'm using the Anchor app. I used to use Zoom. It's like, you know, audacity was so complex for me. I was like, no, I'm not even going there. Yeah, it's super intimidating when you first open it up. There's so many options and so many things you can do. Uh, yeah, but I feel like it's taken me almost five years to, to ah, become see? somewhat so, good. <laughs> see, and then you said, you know, it's easy to figure out. No, for me, it was not easy to figure out at all. No, 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 no. I looked at it and I was looking at it and I was looking at it and I'm like, how is this something easy to figure out? So I left it. If you've got five years, then uh, yeah, then it's easy to figure out, I guess. Yeah. Yes, five years down the line. Okay, awesome. So remind me, what's the latest, what's the name of your latest book that you've got audio dramas for now? Yeah, so I brought a little uh, episode, the first episode here with me. It's called The Star Collector. Um, I sort of describe it as Indiana Jones in space sort of thing. 
it's an adventure. It's uh, light, lighthearted, and uh, yeah, it's fun and easy to listen to. Well, you know, it's coming to the end of 2019. Um, what's, you know, what are the best bits of this particular episode of your podio job, podio book that you think the listeners would enjoy listening to? Mm, I think there's good uh, dialogue between the characters. There's a little bit of friction between uh, the two main characters and they have good bounce. Uh, what's the word for that? What do you call when two people have good uh, chemistry and good... Um, rapport? Rapport. Yeah, there's another word I'm thinking of. Oh, darn. You well, can edit we'll go out, with rapport. Right, sort of. <laughs> <laughs> Even, you know, rapport is good enough. <laughs> okay, cool. So, but anyway, yeah, they have good chemistry between the two of them. Yes. Do you have a website? So, if uh, anyone wants no. to connect with you, currently I don't, but I have Twitter that I uh, use to connect with fans. Um, and then okay. also I have a Facebook page. Okay, so what are those? So, if anyone's interested, you know, they've probably, when they listen to the episode, we're going to play after our conversation and they think, oh, that sounds interesting. I want to find out more about, you know, Matthew's, you know, podio books. They can connect with you. Yeah, absolutely. So at Twitter, I'm at Matt underscore Will underscore. And then on Facebook, uh, it's just the Matthew William page. Okay. Awesome. Well, thank you very much. And so now we're going to play your, your podio book. Yes? Yes. Sounds great. Thanks for having me. Awesome. Speak to you again soon. Bye. Bye-bye. The Star Collector by Matthew William Chapter 1 In a flash of light, life was wiped from our universe. For a brief moment, there was nothing. Then, quietly and invisibly, life began on a pale blue dot three spots out from our sun. A few billion years later, a sheriff and his newly appointed deputy sat in a diner overlooking the stars. Their booth was set next to a window with glass frigid to the touch, the smell of bacon and coffee permeating the room. At 5.35, the nighttime lights flickered to life, illuminating the establishment since the ancient alien ruins were blocking the nearby star. You know what wiped them all out? Tammy, the deputy asked. It was my teammate. He had gone in there and killed the entire enemy team all by himself. That, long story short, is how I won an esports tournament. The sheriff stared out the window at the still, silent night of the asteroid field. Of all the systems in all the galaxy, filled with wonder and intrigue, he was stuck here, listening to the exploits of a video game champ, and on a Friday night, no less. The short version was surprisingly long, he announced. And I'll tell you why we won that game, the deputy continued. And you weren't even finished yet. A Martian tugship cruising past the diner caught his eye. That could mean trouble, but he decided to ignore it. The deputy leaned in over the table and lowered her voice. I'd memorized the manual beforehand, so I knew all the map secrets, plain and simple. It was like shooting ducks in a barrel. How devious of you, the sheriff said. It was now certain this was going to be a long season. And for future reference, it's like shooting fish in a barrel, not ducks. Really? Yes, really. Why would there be fish in a barrel? For the same reason there'd be ducks in a barrel. It's a saying with no grounding in reality. Like, it's raining cats and dogs, or they lived happily ever after. Oh, 
I see, the girl said, looking down awkwardly at the table. Whoops. That was what happened when he tried too hard to prove a point. It exposed some of the wounded idealism normally hiding beneath the detached surface. Eager for distraction, he glanced at the gadget strapped to his wrist. To the untrained eye, it could have been mistaken for a watch, but to the perceptive, it was clearly a century-old Bremen Star Sailor's Compass, the envy of every collector in this quadrant. As usual, its arrow pointed towards Bolstra 5. He gazed out the window to see if he could spot that familiar star in space. He could, and the memories came flooding back. Her eyes, her body's warmth, the feel of her lips against his. So when do you think we can go and check out the ruins? The deputy asked. Never, the sheriff answered, glaring out the side of his eye. The ruins weren't dangerous or off-limits. He simply wanted to prove a point. She was unwanted here. Why had they assigned him a deputy? Things had been going fine. And Sector 121 wasn't the type of place that needed a large police force. There's a quiet little community, sitting at a crossroads and bordering eight factions. The Martians, the Japanese Space Fleet, Lunar Federation, People's Republic of Congo, Rhineland, Unicorp, Pandacola Company, and the United States of America. Sector 121 sat like a matchbox in between them. The diner, the alien ruins, and a visitor's center were all within the little neutral zone. The diner was, by far, the liveliest of the bunch, and being a Friday night, the place was packed. Truck drivers, cabbies, prospectors, immigrants, every sort of desperate person you can imagine was to be found there, all looking to trade and sell their antiques and collector's items. Now, a diner wasn't normally the place you'd go to sell antiques. The risk of getting syrup on your piece was far too great. But the Cosmo Diner was different from other diners in the fact that the Cosmo Diner had the one appraiser this side of the Chinese border that everyone knew and respected. Joe Corbett was his name, and his word was taken as gospel in these parts. They said he had learned at the feet of the great Gary Shenzhen, the famed Chinese antiquarian. However, many just considered that a myth. Joe noticed the queue at the neon bar was getting kind of long, so he signaled for the first person in line to step forward. Patricia, a young miner with an auburn braid and Jackson Pollock freckles, approached, carrying an old trinket in a cardboard box. Her steps were slow over the smooth plastic floor, as if she was nervous for this meeting. Terry Galen is looking to sell this, she said, setting the piece on the table before the sheriff. For three hundred credits. And? Joe asked. He always wanted to know what they wanted to know before he went to work. Well, is it real? It's not worth three hundred credits, I'll tell you that much, Joe said, examining the item. It was an old steel mapping matrix used by asteroid miners from the turn of the century, meant to scan large swaths of space for valuable metals. With a twinge of excitement, he noticed the fog on the glass display. That was a dead giveaway. The piece was fake. Real mapping matrixes were sealed tight with atomic compression. It's a copy, Joe said, setting the item down and looking up at the girl. She scrunched her nose. Joe scribbled his prognosis and signature into a little appraisal notepad, tore along the perforated edge, and handed it over. This part of the job gave him no joy whatsoever, when an item went from real to fake. To see a smile leave the face, the hope of a sale evaporate, and the magic that once imbued a promising piece vanish into thin air. It was, on a very small scale, devastating. But it was a necessary evil, since truth was more important than happiness. In fact, Joe had come to realize that the two were enemies. Happiness was being in the arms of a lover. Truth was knowing she didn't love you back. 
Patricia took the box and stared at the now worthless piece. I almost wish I hadn't asked. I don't find these so often. She paused for a moment. Do you think I should buy it anyway? Why would you want to buy a fake? Joe asked. He'd never been asked buying advice on an established counterfeit before. Nobody would know but me, right? I guess, Joe said, completely confused. The girl nodded and slouched off with the trinket, back to the bar where Terry Galen was waiting. Joe watched her go. It was bad news for both the buyer and the seller, but ultimately good news for him. You see, he had never been fooled by a fake, and his secret was simple. He assumed everything was fake. Every item he came across was met with a skeptical eye and a suspicious mind, and sooner or later, the truth came to light. And with each and every correct appraisal, he solidified his role as king of this place. It made him feel important, like he mattered in the grand scheme of things. And that tricked his mind into thinking that life, the universe, and everything had some sort of meaning. Joe was content with that trade-off. What is it you do here, exactly? Tammy, the deputy, asked. We eat here. It's a diner, Joe, the sheriff answered. No, I mean, what was that all about with her? She nodded to the girl who was now buying the fake trinket for cheap. Oh, that. I give advice on antiques. It's sort of a hobby of mine. Uh-huh. And do they pay you for this advice? Tammy asked. That's a strangely specific question to ask. It's a strangely specific hobby to have. It's not really any of your business what hobbies I have, and no, they don't pay me. So it's not exactly a source of income, per se, Tammy stated. No, it's not, Joe answered. He was beginning to suspect why they had assigned him a deputy all of a sudden. A middle-aged woman with problems of her own came by to take their orders. Joe noticed it wasn't the usual waitress. Where's Nancy? he asked. She's got a cold, the waitress answered. Well, I'll have the usual, Joe said, handing her the menu. If you were Nancy, you'd know that's the Jupiler chili. I'll take a mental note, she responded. The Jupiler chili was delicious, and it slowly killed him. Joe loved it for both reasons. The waitress turned to the deputy. Tammy poured over the menu, a look on her face of someone receiving bad news. Are the sprouts in the sprout salad organic? The waitress just chewed her gum. I have no idea. Because I don't want them if they're not. The woman answered with a shrug. Joe sighed. You know we're about a hundred million miles from the closest patch of dirt, right? I'm aware of that, Tammy said. And it matters to you whether the sprouts are organic? I don't want Frankenstein sprouts. What difference does it make, Joe asked, as if the words hurt him physically to say. I care about what I put in my body, Tammy replied, as if it hurt physically to be questioned. Joe stared at the deputy like she was speaking a foreign language. You realize it's a miracle that they've even come this far, right? That hardly qualifies as a miracle, Joe, Tammy said. In any case, I care about my health. You should, too. Joe laughed. He took a pack of cigarettes from his jacket pocket and was about to give a demonstration in how little he cared about his health. You can't smoke in here, the waitress said flatly. Joe stared at her, long enough for her to know he was annoyed, then pointed to the line cook in the kitchen, who worked with a lit cigar clamped between his teeth. What about him? He's back there under the fan, said the waitress. You're out here and my son's behind you trying to do his homework. Joe glanced back at the kid who was blowing the paper off the plastic straws in the next booth. The waitress gave Joe a fake smile then turned back to Tammy. Come on, this isn't life or death. I have to have everything cleaned up before the transport comes. Joe yanked the menu from Tammy's hands and gave it to the waitress. She'll have what I'm having. Stellar, the waitress said and took off for the kitchen. She stopped at the door. Max, homework! The kid jumped to attention, dropping his straw and picking up a pencil. These people out here don't handle strangers very well, Joe said, so 
Try acting less strange. Tammy nodded. Now, where was I? Oh yes, the eSports tournament. As I said, I had read through the manual carefully. Joe's eyes glossed over and he stared off into the diner. Suddenly, a familiar face came into view. Oh, jeez, he blurted out and reflexively slouched down in the booth. What's wrong? Tammy asked, glancing in the direction Joe had been looking. It's Denise McGee. Who's that? A guy I hate. Why? He's happy all the time. Isn't that a good thing? You'd change your mind if you met him. Do you want to leave? Tammy asked. Joe thought for a moment. Leaving would surely draw Denise's attention. He glanced at his star sailor's compass and informed him that it had been 15 hours since he'd last eaten. The Jupiler chili was too good to pass up. His stomach rumbled, indicating its vote to stay. We'll eat fast. As if on cue, the waitress brought out two orders of steaming hot chili. Joe pulled his bowl in close and inhaled. Kessel spices, peppers, tomatoes, argonaut beef, it all reminded him of home, back where the air wasn't recycled and the gravity wasn't artificial. The scent traveled through his olfactory system, triggered the memory region of his brain, and pushed out a smile through his face. Yuck, said Tammy, lifting the spoon to inspect the red mush. You actually like this? Joe glared at the deputy. He decided he was going to ignore her for the rest of the day. It's too unhealthy, Tammy said, shaking her head and pushing her bowl away. Joe slammed his fist down on the table. People around the diner turned to see where the sound of rattling silverware had come from. He glanced at them, rubbed with embarrassment, then looked back to the girl. Listen, kid, every single thing we eat is unhealthy. Sooner or later, it's going to kill you. There's no way around that. And the sooner you realize that, the sooner you can... He stopped when he noticed a grinning idiot in genie pants standing next to him. Hello, Joe, Dennis McGee said. Joe turned. He could see it in the man's eyes. He was keenly aware of how annoying he was. The hair sitting on the top of his head like an uncoiled spring was a testament to that. I knew I'd find you here. Holy heck, it's a ghost, Joe said. I thought you were dead. You only wish. And when did you become a cop? Well, sheriff, technically, and a few years ago. But you know what, Denise? I was just about to go and have a smoke. Joe stood up to leave the booth. So I really don't have the time today. Too bad, because I have a very special item traveling with me, Denise said. It'd make a real good evaluation for your portfolio. I'm not in the mood, Joe said. As he turned to leave, an item on the other side of the diner caught his eye and froze him dead in his tracks. A muscular man in a too tight Armani suit was showing off a blaster to some young party girls at the bar. It's from the Alpha Centauri colony, the man bragged. You see, Dennis went on, seeing Joe had been hooked. It's a very interesting item, brought here by a friend of mine looking to make a trade. That was Joe's weakness, the Alpha Centauri colony, simply because it was home and being out on the fringes of the galaxy for so long had made him ache for the place. His senses were now hyper-aware to catch any mention of Alpha Centauri, whether in print or spoken word. It was as much a liability as it was an asset. He'd often miss turns while driving because the radio made a passing mention of his home sector. However, it also meant that Joe could now spot a fake from a light year away. He swept in and snatched the blaster from the muscular man's hands. I hate to break it to you, bud, but this ain't from Alpha Centauri. This... Brass barrel should be more blue than green because of the nitrates in the atmosphere. And this grip design wasn't implemented until 2021 at least. And lastly, the wearing of the corners here means they used carbonized aluminum, not titanium. All of which points to the fact that this wasn't made on Alpha Centauri. It was made on Culpe, which means it's more or less worthless. The muscular man looked like he was about to cry. 
Joe now noticed the tear tattoos he had below his eyes. The guy who sold it to me said it was genuine. The guy who sold it to you lied, Joe replied, handing the blaster back to him. Or he didn't know the difference. Either way, it's not real. Who says I can trust you anyway? You ever hear of Gary Shenzhen? Joe asked. There was a gasp from the old antique collectors waiting at the bar. Was the myth about to be confirmed? Well, let's just say me and him are partners, of sorts, Joe announced. The onlookers cooed in astonishment. The truth was better than the legend. The young party girls who had previously been impressed by the blaster turned away snickering. The muscular man stood there, a scowl on his face. Denise McGee approached, slow clapping like a smug prick. You and Shenzhen are partners now, he asked. Of sorts, Joe answered. Your legend grows, Denise said with a smile. I want you to meet my friend, Alistair Meza. Joe's stomach tried to climb out through his throat. Nice to meet you, he managed to grunt. If he had known he had been appraising an item for Alistair Meza, the infamous mob hitman, he would have at least worked some nice words about the blaster into his critique. In a wave of horror, he realized that the firearm was still in fine, working condition. I'm not a professional, though, Joe added as an afterthought, so my opinion is more or less worthless. Denise told me your word is gold, Alistair said. Denise exaggerates, I'm guessing half the time. Joe noticed the old collectors at the bar looking on in shock. His reputation would surely take a hit, but he couldn't evaluate antiques if he was dead. And you never said Joe was a cop, Alistair Meza said, turning to Denise. Sheriff, actually, Joe interjected. This was news to me as well, Denise said. Is this the guy you wanted me to get an evaluation from? Alistair asked. Fellas, why don't you just take a seat and we can settle all this in a moment, Joe said. He pointed back to his deputy in the booth. I'm in the middle of a very important business meeting. I'm not waiting to settle this, Alistair said. He's not waiting to settle this, Joe, Denise added. You won't be waiting to settle this, Joe said. I'll just be prepping. Please, sit. He guided them over to a table and went back to his deputy who sat wide-eyed in a booth. She was up on the edge of her seat as he approached. Holy moly, that's Alistair Meza. Yeah, no kidding, Joe said. Let's get out of here. But he's on the Quadrant's most wanted list. That's more of a recommendation than an actual to-do list, Joe said. Tammy checked her phone. He's wanted for murder in this sector, too. I know, Joe said. We should make the arrest. Like hell we are. We're sneaking out. No, we're not, Tammy said. Suit yourself, Joe said. He left her in the booth and was about to slip out the side door when the waitress came by with the check. Not planning on dining and dashing, are we? The waitress asked. <laughs> I'd never dream of it, Joe said with a smile. She led him to the register, his stomach in knots. Suddenly, Joe realized that the path he was taking made it look exactly like he was trying to sneak up behind Mr. Alistair Meza. From the corner of his eye, he saw the hitman stand and come to cut him off at the pass, his hand on the very blaster Joe had just said was worthless. Alistair wasn't planning on going out quietly, which was a shame, because Joe was. Cash or card, the waitress asked. With a shaking hand, Joe took a debit card from his wallet and handed it over. He turned to see Alistair standing only a couple meters away, blocking the front entrance. Everybody in the diner went silent and turned to watch the scene unfold. Were you planning on calling for backup or sneaking up on me? Alistair asked. Neither, said Joe. I was planning on paying and then coming to talk to you. Don't lie to me, man, Alistair said, flipping the safety off the blaster. Don't disrespect me like that. Denise McGee approached his friend with his hands raised. Now, I think this has all been a very big misunderstanding. Joe noticed his deputy was frozen back in the booth. So much for backup. 
No, Denise, this guy was sneaking up on me, Alistair muttered, shaking his head. And now he's disrespecting me in front of all these people by lying to my face. Great Spectre is my witness. No one gets away with that. How about I pay for your meal, Joe suggested. He turned to the waitress. Put his on my tab, too. There's a problem, the waitress said. What's that? Your card's been declined, she answered. The sweat gathered on Joe's burning forehead. Oh, wrong card, he said with a smile, taking another card from his wallet. Try this one. Alistair took the blaster from his belt. The waitress shrieked. Joe was paralyzed. Denise stood between them, pale-faced and shocked that it had all come to this. Alistair held the blaster firm at his side with his finger on the trigger. Aren't you going to do something? The waitress whimpered to Joe. Just run the card, he said, looking back to Alistair. Nobody can say no to a free lunch, right? Free lunch won't get you out of this, Alistair replied. The seconds passed like hours. Joe couldn't foresee any way out that didn't result with him in a body bag. Um, sir, the waitress said. This one's been declined, too. Joe peered into his wallet for anything else that might be considered legal tender. He knew he had kept a postage stamp in there at one point in time. The crowded diner sat in silence. The waitress handed Joe his credit card. Looks like you're going to have to do some dishes, Mr. Corbett. Alistair began to laugh. It started as a scoff, then evolved into a chuckle, then a full-blown cackle. Joe turned to the man with a wince, unsure as to whether or not he was performing some sort of pre-murder ritual. Looks like you're in more trouble alive than dead, Alistair exclaimed. An uneasy laughter spread throughout the diner. Here, Joe, wash this for me while you're at it, a nearby trucker shouted, tossing a coffee spoon at Joe's feet. The diner erupted into laughter. Joe nodded and smiled. His face went from sweaty to burning with embarrassment in an instant. He wondered if his word would still be taken as gospel after all this. Here, let me get the bill for you, Denise said, approaching the register. No, Alistair said, grabbing him by the arm. He has this coming. Make those dishes shine, my friend. The hitman turned and walked out the front door. Denise looked with a pained expression to Joe. I'll be in touch. You owe me, Joe said. Of course, Denise answered as he sauntered towards the door. Call me sometime. I'll be at my drill. You know, the big one. Ciao. Joe recoiled at the use of ciao. The chatter returned to the room, and the next thing Joe knew, he was whisked away to a mountain of dirty dishes. He turned on the piping hot water, and the steam began to rise. By the time he was all done, all the old collectors at the bar had left and gone home. Joe had the sinking feeling that they weren't coming back. He shouldn't have said he was guessing when he made appraisals. He never guessed. Every claim he made was 100% certain. Uh, what difference did it make anyway? Who was going to take advice from a guy who couldn't even balance a checkbook? His reign as king had ended. He trudged out to his ship, still wearing a dirty apron over his gray sheriff's uniform, sweaty and exfoliated. He climbed up the on-ramp of the Crown Vic, his home and mode of transportation for the better part of seven years. Tammy was asleep in the passenger seat. Her left eye popped open as Joe sat down. How'd it go? she asked as she stirred the life. Well, they didn't have any rubber gloves, Joe sighed, and now my fingers are prunes. He squinted to see if he still had prints. He did, but only barely. Why don't you have any money? Tammy asked. I have money, Joe said. I just oversaved this month. I could give you a little something if you need it. I said I oversaved, all right. He sighed and stared out the windshield thinking back to that fateful assessment he had made on Alistair's blaster. Counterfeit crap ruins my life. Then why do you even do it? Tammy asked. 
A mayday call lit up on the dashboard, a flashing red hologram. Joe leaned in to answer. Where's it coming from? Tammy asked. The ruins visitor center, Joe replied. The deputy's brown eyes lit up. Does that mean we're going to the ruins? I said the visitor center, not the ruins, Joe answered the call. Hello, Sheriff Corbett. Hey, uh, we tripped and bumped the alarm by accident, came the voice. Oh, all right, everything okay there? Yeah, no problems. Well, be more careful, or I'll have you cited for recklessness, Joe said jokingly. All right, the caller said, and hung up. Joe started up the engine. Well, that was a load of bull. What? They said they tripped. I didn't recognize the voice, Joe said. Are you sure? Pretty sure. And you know everyone who works there? Tammy asked. Yep. Do what you gotta do, Tammy said, leaning back with her hands folded on her stomach. Sounds to me like an accident. Just then, an empty shuttle for touring the ruins floated past the diner and out into the asteroid field. Well, let's see who was right, Joe said as he pulled out from the parking lot and set a course for the ruins visitors center. Thank you for listening to The Star Collector. To support this podcast, please like The Star Collector on Facebook or visit the Matthew William Patreon page for extra stories and peeks behind the scenes on the making of Star Collector and other tales. For updates on future episodes, you can follow me on Twitter. It's Matt underscore Will underscore. And if you think the show is worth a couple bucks, consider visiting my Buy Me a Coffee page. All links are in the show notes. Until next time. And that brings us to the end of today's episode of the Shagilola Salami Show. Um, I hope you've enjoyed listening to today's episode. Um, I would really appreciate it if you would consider leaving a review of the show because it sort of helps me know what I'm doing right, what I'm not doing so right, and what I need to improve. Um, If you know anyone else who would benefit um, or who would enjoy the show, please do share the show with everyone in your network. Thank you very much. And until next time, again, it is the Shagilola Salami Show. Bye now.